0: Good morning, glad to have you here at Eastside this morning, glad that you would start your week with us in worship and praise of God and His risen Son, Jesus. Let's start this morning by addressing the elephant in the room. My memory's not that good, and I know I need to have my vision checked, but that's not Adam. (laughs) I know I'm not Adam, I knew that before you did. Adam is not here today, and this is why. Kennedy Grace Parks... Born, yes this is what you've been waiting for kennedy grace parks born a few days ago x pounds and so many ounces i'm a man i don't care about those details all the women want to know and i got nothing for you okay this is what i got so um adam has asked me to come and fill in for him today he asked me this a few weeks ago and just said look we know it's coming would you just be ready I'm a member here at Eastside, I've been attending here for two and a half, maybe three years, and my name is Les Hardin, and in my day job, I am professor of New Testament at Johnson University, Florida. Johnson University, Florida, specializes in training ministry personnel, pastoral ministry personnel, and other strategic vocations framed by the Great Commission to extend the kingdom of God among all nations. So there are three people who are on stage this morning who are former students of mine. There are another three or four in the congregation here who are former students of mine. Adam was a former student of mine. And so when Adam, who knows what I do, he said, look, we know this is coming. Would you just be ready? And I said, yeah, sure. Love to do so." Because of my job, I'm on the road a lot, and so I, sometimes you don't, some of you don't see me very often. Uh, some of you know me pretty well, and there's like five of you I make sure that I talk to every time I come here, and the rest of you don't know me that well. There was a period in, in February to early April, I was on the road for like eight weeks. You know, And so if it looks like I am the least faithful member of this congregation, that is true, you know, just because I'm on the road a lot doing what I do. Now, Adam's been doing a series for us on the book of Judges. Judges is a weird book, and it would have been easy for Adam to say, look, Les, would you just finish, like, the next sermon in the series on Judges? But what Adam decided to do, he's doing Judges better than I would have done it. What Adam asked me to do today was say, look, let's just make this real easy. I want you to preach on your favorite verse, or maybe a verse that has shaped your life more than anything else. So that's what Adam asked me to do today. So I got to thinking what is my favorite verse? I'm not a professor of verses. I'm a professor of the New Testament. Like, I teach the Bible. I don't teach verse. I teach the Bible. And so, I got to thinking, what what is it that I would preach on? Like, there are any number of things that I could, you know, preach for you in the three hours Adam has given me this morning. You know, I could do that. I got to thinking, okay, I've got a number of students, former students in the room. What are they expecting me to preach on? Many of them would say, well, Hardin's definitely going to preach on Daniel 7. Daniel 7, Brandon's fist bumping me back there because he thought that was going to be coming, right? Daniel 7 is probably one of the two texts in the Old Testament that appears in the New Testament more often than any other thing. Daniel 7 is all over the New Testament. Lots of folks don't see it. The story is this, there are these beasts that are coming up out of the sea, raging against the people of God. In the midst of that battle, God takes one of his own people and elevates him to his right hand. That person is called the son of man. That person rides on the clouds, is ushered to the right hand of God, seated on God's throne, and treated like he is God's equal. Now, that story becomes the basis for which Jesus begins to describe his own identity and his vocation. And more than 85 times in the Gospels, he calls himself Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite text. And so it would make sense that my students would say, Harden, you just can't stop talking about Daniel 7. Certainly he's going to preach on that. And maybe I could. I wrote the article for the Lexham Bible Dictionary on Son of Man, and I could preach on that one. That's a good one. They're also expecting me to preach on Psalm 2. Because Psalm 2 is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. When the apostles are writing their books about Jesus, they keep coming back to Psalm 2 as the best thing to explain Jesus and what he is doing. Psalm 2 is a good one. Maybe they expect me to preach on 2 Samuel 7. That's a little bit more obscure. But in this particular text, God says to King David, greatest king of Israel there ever was, one of your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. David wants to build God a house. He wants to build him a temple. He said, look, all these nations around me have temples to their God. And here is Yahweh living in a tent. And God says something like, I don't need me no house to be awesome. That's from the New Kentucky Version. God says, look, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And one of your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And lots of folks thought that meant that somebody would always be on the throne of Israel. But what God meant was one, one of your descendants We'll sit on Israel's throne forever. How does that come true in Jesus' life? Yeah, I could certainly preach on that one. Or Isaiah 5, the song about the vineyard. God is a vineyard, okay? The vineyard is Israel. And he said, look, I've planted my vineyard. I've given everything to it that it needs to be successful. I just want good fruit from my people, and all I'm getting is bloodshed and cries of distress. That text makes its way into Jesus' ministry as he explains to the Jewish leaders why they're failing all the time. Isaiah 5 is a good one. I could preach to you on the hymns of Revelation. The hymns of Revelation, I have a published article in an academic journal on the hymns of Revelation. I could help you understand how they're identified, what the theology is of them. I could help you understand all the vocabulary in it. They're great songs because one of the things we find is that the hymns of Revelation never have I or me language in them. It's always the people of God singing in God's direction. We are grateful for what you've done for all of us. They are a true community. Yeah, the hymns of Revelation are good ones. And while it would certainly be the easy way for me to preach for you today on things that I already know, it seems to lack integrity. I'm a member of this community. What you need is not my bare minimum. You need my best, and it's not been the hardened way to ever ever do anything easily. (laughs) So I thought, okay, well... Maybe those texts are what everybody expects me to preach on. Maybe I won't do those. Maybe I'll preach from something weird. Some weird texts. There's certainly weird stuff in the Bible. Nahum chapter 3 is the first thing that comes to my mind. Woe to the city of blood, lies and plunder, piles of dead, people stumbling over the corpses all because of the wanton lust of a whore. I'm suddenly realizing we didn't send the kids out for junior church this morning. <laughs> that text is weird. Yeah, I'm not going to preach on that. <laughs> Just throw it out there Harden, we want to know what that's about Yeah, I'll see me later Or how about Deuteronomy 25 This text is so bizarre You thought you were pro-family Deuteronomy 25 gives us the idea of what we call levirate marriage And it works like this In ancient Israel Because they have such a desire to perpetuate the bloodlines and the family tree If a man marries a woman and he dies without giving her children She is to marry his brother have children with the brother and name them after her first husband. You thought she was pro-family? Not like this. Not like this. I'm not preaching on that. <laughs> or how about Judges 11? This one's certainly weird and certainly something that, that causes us a lot of consternation. Jephthah, coming back from a victory, is so enamored with the help of God that he says, the next thing that walks out my door, I'm going to sacrifice to God. And what comes out his door next is his daughter. That text is hard. It is weird, and it is hard. Weird texts like 1 Samuel 18. David and his fighting men, his trained assassins, Seal Team David, killed 200 Philistines and came back with their foreskins. I, mm, 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 nope, nope. <laughs> like, how did, no, 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 let's not do that. <laughs> like, did they carry, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> Did they, nope, nope, stop, stop. (laughs) There are certainly texts that are weird in the Bible that I think we could drill down on. I don't wanna do that, okay. Then there are texts that I think are funny. Now, maybe you don't think they're funny, but I'm having a good time up here. I think these are funny, okay? And so while she's taking the pictures, we'll do some poses. (laughs) How about 1 Thessalonians 4.11? That makes a weird life verse, right? Make it your ambition, lead a quiet life and mind your own business. Now, that sounds more like my life verse for you, okay? Mark Kitts, make it your ambition lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Don't bother me. Leave me alone. That text is very weird, and we don't want to offend anybody by preaching uh, that particular version of the way I just said that this morning. Or how about Jeremiah 36? This one's funny to me. Jeremiah is told by God, write down the oracles of God against King Jehoiakim. He takes them to King Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, God is against King Jehoiakim, and he says, look, you're going down. Okay, It's better worded in Jeremiah, but he basically says, you're going down. King Jehoiakim is so upset with Jeremiah that he takes the scroll and burns it in front of Jeremiah. That's not the funny part. The funny part to me is Jeremiah says, God, what do you want me to do? And God says, write it again. (laughs) You can't nullify the word of God by burning the paper that it's written on. The word of God is the beliefs of God. And God believes that Jehoiakim is not fit to lead in Israel. Just because you burn it doesn't mean that you've nullified the word of God. So Jeremiah is going to write it again. Mark chapter 1 has a funny text in it to me. Jesus got up early one day to pray. And the disciples came looking for him. And what they said was, and and the text indicates that they were looking for him for quite a while. They couldn't find him. And when they finally find him, they say to Jesus, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus responds with the introvert's mantra, let's go somewhere else. That one's funny to me. Everybody's looking for you. Let's leave. (laughs) I don't want to be here. I don't want to talk to these people. Now he says he wants to go and preach somewhere else. How about Mark chapter 1? This one's funny to me. They were throwing their nets into the lake. Mark's talking about James and John. It says, they were throwing their nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. Now, just in case you had some worry about why they were throwing nets into the lake, maybe you thought they had some kind of a business down in the fishing district that they just disposed of old nets. You know, they're supposed to depose them, uh, dispose of them in the proper EPA manner, but they're just throwing them into the lake. Or maybe you thought, maybe they work for the mob. And maybe when Simon the zealot puts a hit out on a guy, they just wrap the body up in nets and throw it in the lake. No, let's be clear. They're throwing nets into the lake because they're fishermen. I don't know. That's funny to me. You guys don't seem like you're all that interested in this. Stuff. So whatever. So just laugh and make me feel good about myself. Okay. And you can just criticize me later. Now, how about Mark chapter 6? This one's funny. This is not very well noticed in the English text. But Jesus sent the disciples ahead of him across the lake on a boat. And the text of Mark tells us that when Jesus come walking up on the water, that he intended to pass by them. He didn't intend to catch up with them on the boat. What he wanted to do was just walk right on past them and meet them on the other side. Can you imagine that? At 3 o'clock in the morning, come walking, Jesus, so, you know, and he just walks on the other side. Peter's the one who stops him. I don't know. That one's funny to me. Or how about Mark 16. Peter and John run to the tomb on that Sunday morning, and they find an angel sitting there instead of Jesus. Now, Jesus has been crucified, and he told them he was going to rise from the dead. But when they go to the tomb to anoint his body, they find the angel sitting. And the angel says, and here's the actual text, He is not here. He is risen. See the place where he lay. Now, this doesn't sound all that funny because this is the resurrection of Jesus. This is serious stuff, right? But to me, it's, it's the juxtaposition of the claim against the evidence. It makes me wonder if the angel was a bit of a dork, <laughs> you know. He was like, "Where's Jesus? He ain't here." Clearly, <laughs> right? Clearly he's not here. See, so it's Cabi Lamay, right? <laughs> See the place where he lay. He is not here. Makes God thinks maybe this angel needs a little a little wind. You know, he's having a hard time. You know, I tell you what, he's having a hard time. Let's send him down to announce the resurrection, and he gets down our head. He ain't. <laughs> Y'all looking for Jesus? He ain't here. Where is he? <laughs> he ain't here. <laughs> This text is funny to me. Help me out here, would you please? Now, (laughs) I wasn't sure where to land. So I asked my kids to suggest to me verses that they thought were my favorite. Now, this is a bit of a humbling experience because the things that you often think that you care about are not what your kids hear you talk about all the time. So this is a little bit humbling, you know, had them say, oh, you talk about this one more than any." My son-in-law, Eddie, is a preacher in Houston, and he said immediately, Isaiah 52, seven. He said this because he knew how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of them that bring good news, who proclaim peace and speak to Zion and say, your God is the one who reigns. Eddie knows that I recite this text every time I preach. I can neither cycle nor play racquetball nor preach in loosely tied shoes, and so every time I preach during the communion meditation, I bend down, I tie my shoes, I recite Isaiah, and I recite the Great Commandment. We live in Kissimmee. I knew I was preaching this morning, and so I, I brought my preaching clothes. You know, I'm Adam. You know, Adam dresses better than this, but I I brought my preaching clothes. Kissimmee is 45 minutes from here. I forgot my shoes. <laughs> Now you're all looking at my feet, aren't you? Okay. (laughs) Now It just happens that these tennis shoes I'm wearing are black. I forgot my dress shoes. And I feel really badly about that. But I want you to hear Isaiah again. It's not my shoes that make my feet beautiful. What makes these feet beautiful, and they're nasty feet. But what makes these feet beautiful is that they come bringing to you good news. Some of my kids said, you should preach on the great commandment. What the Jewish people call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Yahweh is one, and you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these two. Eddie knows that I recite Isaiah 52, and I recite this text every time I preach. It's a discipline that I have. I preach, I recite this text to remind myself I am not here to preach for my own vainglory and to preach my own words. I'm here to preach God's words, to love him with all I have, and to love you with all that I have. And loving you with all I have doesn't mean bringing you the, the least common denominator of what I have about me. It's to bring the best that I have for you at that moment. Not just recycle some old sermon, but to give you the very best of who I am. This text has maybe formed me more than any other. I recite this text often. I recite it in Hebrew. That's the version you find it in the Old Testament. I recite it in Greek and the version you find it in the, in the New Testament. I recite it in Spanish because a lot of my students uh, speak that language. And I recite it in English. It is the backbone of everything Jesus demanded of us. To love God with everything. And to love your neighbor really, really well. That's a good one. One of my kids suggested John 3.16. You know it, right? For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but might have eternal life. And whosoever memorizeth it in the King James Version shall never be able to escape that language. When they quote John 3.16. Yeah, John 3.16 is a good one. They also suggested Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. This year at Johnson University, Florida, every chapel sermon has been on Psalm 23 twice a week all year long. I am sick to death of Psalm 23. (laughs) I mean, I love Jesus, but I am sick to death of Psalm 23. What's weird to me also is that the apostles, when they are writing their books about Jesus, they constantly quote Psalm 2. They never, not a single time, quote Psalm 23. It's a good one, but we won't focus on that one this morning. They also suggested Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but so many folks take that verse out of context and apply it where it doesn't belong, and I don't want to be guilty of doing that. They suggested Jeremiah 29.11. You know this one. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and to give you hope in a future. But that text, that promise was given to Israel during the exile. Israel had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And God said to his nation, I have plans to prosper you, to bring you back to Jerusalem, and make you a prosperous nation once again. That promise was given specifically to them, and that promise had been fulfilled. That promise doesn't relate to me. So we have to be very, very careful about quoting that one. And one of my kids suggested 1 Peter 5, 7. And I said, what? Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. And I'm just going to be honest with you. This is confession time, okay? I said... That's not in the New Testament. And they said, of course it is. I said, no, it sounds like some cycle babble that you kids just made up that you want to be in the New Testament. It's not in there. And they said, Dad, it's in 1 Peter 5. And I said, well, fine then. But I still don't think I should preach on a text I forgot was in the New Testament. So let's not do that. Or Deuteronomy 31, never will I leave you or forsake you. That's a good one. Or maybe Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. That's a good one. There are lots of texts I could preach from. But here's the thing. I can't choose just one. How do you say to God, these words of yours are better than these words? How do you say to God, I like this that you have to say, but I don't like this that you have to say? Would you say to a significant other, I like these parts of you, but these parts of you I really hate? I was dating a girl one time who told me that. We didn't date very long after that. (laughs) How do you say to Isaiah, who was sawed in half for the word of God, I like what Daniel has to say better than you. How do you say to Peter, who was crucified upside down for the glory of King Jesus, Paul teaches me better than you do? How do you say to Peter, who is an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, Paul teaches me the faith better than you, even though he wasn't there. He, I like him better than I like what you have to say. But we all do this, don't we? I mean, I know many believers who privilege Paul's letters over the rest of the Bible who function as if to say what Paul has to say is better than what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have to say. What Paul has to say is better than what James has to say. What Paul has to say is better than what Isaiah or Genesis has to say. I know people who think that the red-letter parts of Scripture are more the Word of God than the black-letter parts— I got some news for you. There was no red ink in the first century. It was all written in black letters. And if you, you have to examine that kind of philosophy that says these red letter parts are more the word of God than the black letter parts, this entire book is the word of God. And we've got to come to reckon with that. I know people who believe that the New Testament is more the word of God than the Old Testament. Now, if at this moment you find yourself criticizing people who pick and choose the scriptures condemning them in your head right now and say yeah people shouldn't just pick and choose ask yourself this question when was the last time you read Obadiah when was the last time you read Leviticus or Zephaniah or Deuteronomy okay we all do this when was the last time a youth group or a college bible study did anything other than James and Revelations (laughs) If you were a preaching student, you would know that that was the longest introduction and transition in the history of preaching. (laughs) And that what you have here is an inductive sermon. I'm holding the big payout for you until the very end. Okay. I've been asked this morning to come here today and preach to you on the verse that changed my life or my favorite verse, but I'm not going to do that. I want to subvert that narrative just a little bit. I'm going to give you instead the command that was given to Ezekiel. Now, before I give it to you, let me set it up a little bit. God told Ezekiel, I want you to go speak to my people. And there are hard things that you're going to have to say. And before he went to say them, he had them all written down on a book. And he gave it to Isaiah. And this is what he told Isaiah. You ready? Eat this book. Not just one or two verses of it. Not the favorite parts and not the parts that you like. He told Isaiah, you eat the whole thing. So that then, get it inside you, so that then when you speak, what will come out will be the entire counsel and the word of God. I don't want you to have a favorite verse. I don't have a favorite verse. I don't want you to have one either. I don't want you to pick and choose which parts of the Bible you like better than the other parts. I don't want you to be the kind of person who says, I like God just a little bit, but not in toto, not in the whole. I want you to do what I tell my students to do all the time. Don't just see the parts of the evidence that support your narrative. See the whole see all of it bring it all together i was sitting around the other day reading the babylonian talmud because i got that kind of time my life's just that exciting the babylonian talmud is 15 volumes it is about this tall and about that thick every single volume i'm sitting around reading the talmud reading the talmud reminds me of what luke says about the riot in ephesus in acts 19. most people didn't even know why they were there that's what I feel when I'm reading the Talmud. So I'm reading the Talmud the other day, and I, there's this well-known story about Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel was one of the greatest teachers in all of Judaism. And one time this Gentile comes up to him, and he says, Look, if you can teach me the entire Jewish law, all the Bible, all the teachings of, of, the, of the rabbis, all of the, all the weird rules, all of it. You teach me the entire law while you're standing on one foot, I will convert. Now, this was a taunt. Nobody believes he really had intention of doing so. But Rabbi Hillel took the challenge, and he lifted one foot, and he said, what you don't want done to you, don't do to others. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Then he put his foot down. He didn't expect that, right? That story is pretty well known. What's not very well known is the story that appears following that one in the Talmud. The story goes that after he met with Rabbi Hillel, this same Gentile went to visit Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai was a contemporary of Hillel, and they were, they were friends, they were brothers, not literal brothers, but like faith brothers. But they were sparring partners. They had differing ideas, and they challenged each other all the time. So this Gentile leaves Rabbi, Sh- Rabbi Hillel and goes to visit Rabbi Shammai, and he says the same thing. If you can teach me the entire law while you're standing on one foot, I will convert and the Talmud says that Rabbi Shammai picked up a stick and beat the man with it, <laughs> just for asking the question. Why? Because Rabbi Shammai knew that you can't boil the entire council of God down into a single palatable nugget. The council of God is big and it's complex. And what we try to do is try to make it understandable, and, and, and that, that's noble for us to do. But what do we do? We just rip verses out of their context, and we'll put them on, on these little pretty backgrounds and put them on uh, uh, Facebook or InstaTwit or Twittergram or, or FaceTwit, whatever you kids are working on these days. And we, we'll put them up there and, and just kind of rip them out of context, or well, the verse of the day calendars and whatnot. And I'm, I'm with Rabbi Shemai. It takes much more than just one verse to see the entire counsel of God. So I want you to eat the book. Eat the book. The whole book. All of it. Why? Why do I study this whole book? Because Hebrews 4 tells me that the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and if I let it, it will cut me to my very bones. Why do I read this whole book? Because Jesus told me in John 10 that the scripture cannot be broken. Not a single letter of it. He said in Matthew 5 that he had not come to abolish the scriptures, but to bring them to their intended goal. Jesus is doing what the scriptures was always intending to do, and he wants to usher us into that. And until he comes, not a single mark of this book will pass away until it all comes to its completion. Read this whole book because Psalm 119 tells me that this book is a light that shines my path in dark times. And 1 Timothy 4 tells me that my godly responsibility as a pastor is to devote myself to the public reading of Scripture, not to the public reading of my favorite verses. So eat this book. Uh, not this one, get your own, okay? <laughs> and we have some. If you want to eat them, this is getting weird, okay? Please don't eat paper. But we have some Bibles for you out here as you leave. If you don't have one, we encourage you to take one. Eat this book, all of it. What you eat changes you, okay? What you eat changes you. Eat this book. Let it change you from the inside out. Resist the urge to boil the scriptures down into a few of your favorite verses. Because if you do that, the fickle whims of your heart and mine will... Cause us to choose verses that we like, things that are easy for us, things that give us the things that we want, and not the demands of holiness that make us better. We'll ignore all the counsel of God. So I want you to see the whole, see all of it, all of the goodness of God, all the weirdness of the, of the, of the Old Testament, all the uncomfortable texts, all the majesty, all the encouragement, all of the discipline, all of the repentance that makes us into the people of God that Christ died for. If you do, then you'll see the entire character of God and not just little parts of it. I want to show you some things. This here is a picture of my first Bible. My parents got me this Bible a few days after I was born. They didn't get it for me the day I was born. But when I was born, my parents got me two things. They got me a stuffed teddy bear Pinky Little is his name, not was, still is. He still sits on the shelf in my closet at home, okay? is one of my prized possessions in the world. I don't talk about this very much because this is not really the hardened mystique that we're trying to perpetuate in the world, but uh, me and my teddy bear. Uh, <laughs> then they a few days later, they got me this Bible. It was my first ever Bible. It's a small Black leather bound King James Bible. Sort of a family tradition that all the uh, the people in my family have these black leather bound King James Bibles. That's the one that I learned John 3.16 from. Okay, Now all these Bibles I'm about to show you, they're in my office. It was really, really raining this morning and, and there's a few of them I didn't want to bring out into the rain. So I've just got pictures of them here for you. This one, this is the second Bible that I ever owned. My parents got me this one when I was about eight years old. I think it is an NIV Bible, and my parents got it for me because they said it's it's newer. (laughs) I didn't know what that meant when I was eight years old. Here's what I can tell you, though. There are pictures in that Bible. My black one didn't have pictures in it. This one has pictures in it, and if I'd had my wits about me, I would have taken some of those pictures, but maybe it's best that I didn't because good or bad, the pictures in that Bible formed my images of Jesus. And that's good in some ways and bad in other ways. This Bible here is the one that I used in college. As you can tell, it's very, very well worn. It still, to this day, rests on a pull-out shelf underneath my desk uh, where I work and study. There are three books on that shelf. One is a Greek-English Harmony of the Gospels, one is a Greek dictionary, and the other is this Bible. This is the one that I study from the most, as you can tell. It is bound up with all kinds of duct tape, and it is, because it is very well used, it's highlighted on the inside, and and the pages are starting to get brittle and whatnot, and so I, I don't really take it very many places. It just sits on that thing underneath my desk. This Bible is my Greek New Testament. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and as somebody who aims to preach the Word of God in its most unadulterated and uncompromised form, I need to be able to read it in that form, and so I do. Now look, the Harley-Davidson sticker on this Greek New Testament represents a very weird time in my life. And I'm not going to talk about that with you this morning, because I'd just rather forget that period of my life. Okay, here's what I want you to focus on. The duct tape, okay? So this Bible is also very, very well worn. It's been used enough that it needed that duct tape to hold it together. This is the Bible of my grandfather. His name was Leslie Ewell Clinkenbeard. He is the one of my students hear me talk about in class all the time. He was an elder of the church for 40 years. He's the only grandfather that I knew. My dad's parents passed away before I was born, and so this is the only grandfather that I knew. He studied this Bible regularly. If you look closely, you can see some of the notes that he has written up in the margins of this Bible. This was his big Black, leather-bound King James Bible. You don't see how worn it is because my grandmother had it re- re-covered. Is that what you call that? She had a new cover put on the outside of it because it was starting to fall apart. And so this is the Bible that, that had all the secrets of the universe written in the margins. When we were kids and we had questions about the Bible, and we asked my grandfather, he would say, go in there and get my Bible. Oh, it was about to go down. It was some serious knowledge about to be dispensed. Every year at Christmas time, the entire family would gather at my grandfather's house and this little two-bedroom farmhouse, and we would string tables together from one end of the house to the other so we could all sit at the same table. You do this too. As a kid, you're just chomping at the bit, waiting to open presents under the under the tree at my grandfather's house. But my grandfather would not permit the opening of presents in his home on Christmas Eve until we had first read the Christmas story out of this black leather-bound King James Bible. Every year, for 20 years, 18 years, as long as I can remember. I remember the day that I went back home, I'd gone to college and, and gone off in ministry and for a lot of a lot of my my early years in ministry, I was, I was a worship minister, and so I, I got to be at church for the, um, uh, for the Christmas Eve service. Where I grew up, we didn't have Christmas Eve services. Christmas Eve service happened at my grandfather's home there was family and there was food it was a messianic banquet and we read the scriptures and this this was this was church for us so when i went into ministry there was a lot of mm, we have christmas eve service here you can't be with your family you need to be here and i'm not knocking that i'm just saying it was weird for me to get used to that so one year we didn't have that and i went back home and my grandmother my grandfather had passed at this time my grandfather uh, my grandmother calls me over and she while everybody's cleaning off the table and she says, hey, do me a favor, go in there and get Paul's Bible. I was like, okay, she just wants to have it because we're getting ready to read the Christmas story. And as I bring it to her, and I say, here you go, she won't take it. She pushes it back into my hand and she says, I want you to read the Christmas story this year. And this was a big rite of passage, to sit in my grandfather's chair and read from his Bible and do the same tradition that we had been doing for for 20 years. It was a significant rite of passage. And now I have that Bible, and someday it will be passed on to one of my many descendants. This Bible here, very, very old. This Bible was published in 1870. It is held together with wire ribbon. It sits on the filing cabinet in my office, atop the filing cabinet there. It is a polyglot, which means it's written in multiple languages, it has Old English in it, it has Latin in it, and uh, it, it's, um, Jerome's Vulgate is in there. It was originally owned by a man named Joseph Sanford Hardin. He studied it and gave it to his son, James Franklin Hardin, who gave it to his son, Thomas Marion Hardin, who gave it to his son, Bernard Fithian Hardin, who gave it to his son, Thomas C. Hardin who gave it to his son, Leslie Thomas Hardin, who will one day give it to his son, Micah Thomas Hardin. This is the Bible of my great, great, great grandfather. These men who read this book were godly men who studied the scriptures and found in them the good life that Jesus promised to all who live by his decrees. Here's the thing I want you to hang your hat on. None of these men were in ministry. I'm the first person in my extended family tree to enter ministry. None of these men read that Bible and found life in it because they were designing sermons or because they went to Bible college and were trying to please their pastors or their professors. These men were farmers and mechanics and sheriffs and salesmen. They didn't read this because they were looking for some kind of external reward. They read this book. And studied its precepts because they loved God and they wanted to know Him more. And that's what I want from you. That's what I want for you. To be able to say, I'm not just content to know just the little nuggets of what I find in this book. I want to know all of it. Now that's going to take a while. And here at Eastside, we're committed to helping you do that through the preaching that we do, the way we do the preaching, through the the life groups that we have, uh, and through, through making the resources of Scripture available to you. We're happy to do all that. But eat this book. Because if you do, you won't just find little bits of God. You'll find all of God, all of His character, all of who He is. And in doing so, what you'll find is all of the reward and the blessing that He intends for those who love Him. Father, for the things that you've given to us, we are grateful. And to have the word of God printed and available to us on nearly every device that we own, we're grateful. We live in different times than our forefathers, and so it's so available to us. And yet, Father, as available as it is, it's never been more remote from us than it is at this moment. So, Father, I pray that you would build in us, your people here at Eastside, a real hunger to know the word of God a real desire to know and a real fire within us that won't stop until we have that knowledge. Father, we don't do this because we want to be smart, not because we want to be known as people who just know things. We we want this because we love you. And we want to to be the kinds of people who understand you well and can represent you well to others. Representing you well means knowing who you are, and that's where our study of the scripture comes in. So, Father, today as we're we're grateful for all the things that you've given to us we ask you please give us a desire a hunger and a desire to know the word of God and we ask it in the name of Jesus